Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, assumptions about various things in the aquarium hobby are quite pervasive. Essentially, uh, they're everywhere, especially assumptions based on aesthetics or appearances. For example, uh, our hobby seems to place a heavy emphasis on the color of water in our botanical method aquariums. That deeply tinted water in many of the fantastic aquariums we share, you know, we see shared all over social media seems to imply to many that these tinted aquariums feature, you know, soft acidic water conditions as a matter of course, something that we erroneously assume. And a fair number of hobbyists upon embarking on their first adventure with botanical materials often express frustration, confusion, and dismay that their hard alkaline tap water is still hard and alkaline. This type of confusion is likely caused by a lack of understanding of the fundamentals of water chemistry and what exactly, you know, black water is. But it's also caused by a bigger problem, a lack of clarity on our part. Understand that as we've said many times here, botanicals, or expensive botanicals as one armchair expert once said, said, will not create soft acidic, you know, black water conditions without other measures being taken by the hobbyist. It's something that we need to understand. Yeah, the water color is a cool collateral benefit and worthy of celebration, but doesn't really mean all that much in actuality, does it? Sure, it means that the leaves, the seed pods, etc. have imparted their color producing tannins into the water. But which ones? I mean, there's hundreds. And in what concentration? And and what does it all mean to your fishes? Again, color alone is not an indication of the pH, the DKH, or TDS of your water. It's not an indicator of water quality. In actuality, it's a little more than an indicator that some of these materials are dissolving into the water. Yet we in the hobby make claims. And we make recommendations based upon them. And at best, they're subjective guesses. How much tannin or other compounds are in a given botanical is, well, without very specific bioassays and highly specialized equipment, simply a guess on our part. Yeah, everybody's. I think about this a lot. For us to make, I don't know, dosing recommendations based on theoretical concentrations of various compounds thought to be present in a given botanical is simply irresponsible and it's just not grounded in fact. Sure, we'll tell you that based on our experience, a given wood type or seed pod or leaf will color the water darker than another. But again, what does that mean really? Not that much. Again, for the last time, the color of the water is absolutely not an indication of anything other than the fact that tint producing types of tannins are present. It's an aesthetics factor. That's it. It doesn't tell you anything else. Yet we in the hobby are continuously making this sort of crossover assumption, if not in our minds, on our social media feeds and in ads as, as vendors. It's another example of us, quite honestly, dumbing shit down to make things more accessible to hobbyists. 
Now, how does dumbing stuff down make things more accessible? I've asked this a million times. Since my comeback, I've made a big push about this because it's just really bothering me. Is that what the hobby needs right now? Marginally educated yet highly entertained hobbyists with their eager, fresh minds filled with drivel and supposition instead of some of the quote unquote boring stuff. And then they continue to pass this stuff along to other fellow hobbyists as if it means something, you know, ignoring facts. Okay, final thought on the watercolor thing. What does the water, uh, the color of the water mean from an environmental standpoint? Quite honestly, we don't really know. We need more information. That's where the power of our observations and experiences can help fill in some of the mystery here. Advanced water testing and monitoring will also help. Collaboration with scientists, reading research papers on natural habitats may give us some information. However, the reality is that we have more questions than answers right now and likely will for some time. And look, there's nothing wrong with speculation or researching stuff to attempt to validate or disprove our theories as long as we're open-minded and follow the facts whenever possible. Sleuthing as a hobbyist is pretty cool. I kind of went through this phase myself, and being the geek that I am, I went to extraordinary lengths to try to correlate specific environmental conditions or the presence of specific compounds in the water with the use of botanical materials in our tanks. A few years back, I was really hair on fire about this stuff. It was a real area of speculative science. Not exactly exactly scholarly, mind you, but fun for a hobbyist to play with, right? Though here's a story that might interest you. I think I've told this one before, but I, I was visiting a killifish forum on Facebook one night, and one of the participants was discussing some new fishes that he obtained recently, and one was from a, a rare genus called Episimian. It's weird because it's a fish that falls genetically halfway between an Epiplates, which is one genus, and an Epheosimian, another one. It's the term Episimian, kind of an interesting looking fish. Even more interesting to me was the discussion that it's really difficult to spawn and that it's only found in a couple of places in the Republic of the Congo. And even more interesting was that it's in a region known for high levels of a substance called selenium in the soil. And that's really interesting. Selenium is known to be nutritionally beneficial to higher animals and humans, and it's an essential component of many enzymes and proteins, and deficiencies are known to cause diseases. And one of its known health benefits for animals is that it plays a key role in immune uh, and reproductive functions. Okay, perhaps that explains the difficult to breed part. Maybe these fishes need higher levels of selenium than we generally provide in aquarium water, right? Interesting assumption. Selenium occurs in soils associated with sulfide minerals. It's found in plants at varying concentrations, which are dictated by the pH, the moisture content, and other factors. Soils which contain high concentrations of selenium are found in greater concentrations in plants which occur in these regions. Did I, that sound right? Not soils which contain higher concentrations of seleniums, I'm sorry, have plants associated with them that have greater concentrations of selenium as well. And they're found in various regions of the world, including Africa. It's interesting, but how much do we need to provide our episimium in, in, in order for them to reproduce more easily? Or do we even need them? And how do we provide elevated selenium levels in the aquarium? Now, soil is perhaps one way, right? Yet, I'm doubtful that we know the specific concentrations of selenium in many of the planted aquarium substrates out there on the market. And most hobbyists aren't just throwing in that readily available tropical Congo soil that you could pick up at any local fish store into your tank, right? Yeah. So how would we get more selenium into our tanks for our Achilles, for example? Hmm, to use speculation. So my thought at the time was that perhaps botanicals could be one way. 
I rationalized that maybe decomposing botanicals from plants known to contain higher levels of selenium in them could impart this compound into the water. What botanical comes from a plant which is known to have elevated levels of selenium? Well, I did a little reading online and I found out that the Brazil nut is known to have selenium. Well, the Brazil nut comes from a plant that we're all familiar with in the botanical aquarium world. The so-called monkey pot is a botanical we're familiar with. It has something to do with this. Yeah, the monkey pot is technically a fruit capsule produced from the abundant jungle tree Lecithus pisonus. It's native to South America, most notably the Amazonian region. And astute, particularly geeky readers of the tin will recognize the name as a derivative of the family Lecithidae, which just happens to be the family in which the genus Careniana is located. You know, the Careniana pod. Yeah, this family has a number of botanical producing trees in it, doesn't it? Yeah, okay, well, anyway, Lecithidae, right? Ah, it's also known as the taxonomic family which contains the genus Bertholithia. The genus which contains the tree Bertholithia excelsa, the bearer of the Brazil nut. Boy, it took a long way to get there, didn't I? But, you know, the one that comes in that can of mixed nuts, the one that no one really likes. I mean, if you do you like Brazil nuts? I don't. The one that if you buy it in the shell, you need a freaking sledgehammer to crack. I mean, does anybody know how to crack these things? Well, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. So, ah, craving more useless Brazil nut trivia? Well, check this out. Because of their larger size, they tend to rise the top in a can of mixed nuts from vibrations which are encountered during transport. It's a textbook example of the physics concept of granular convection, which for this reason is frequently called, wait for it, the Brazil nut effect. I'm totally serious. I'm not making this up. Look, look it up. Okay. Anyways, I went way off course, but yeah, so I thought I was onto something with this whole Brazil nut, monkey pod, Carinidae, uh, pod thing. And I was wondering if it would be possible to somehow utilize the monkey pod uh, in a tank with these fishes to perhaps impart some additional selenium into the water. Okay, this begs the you know additional questions, of course. Well, how much? How rapidly? In in what form? Wouldn't it be easier just to grind up some Brazil nuts and toss them in, or would the fruit capsule itself have a greater concentration of selenium? Would it even leach into the water? Is it soluble? Wh- where am I going with this stuff? Well, I'm just sort of taking you down the ledge here, demonstrating how the idea of making speculations can potentially yield some practical solutions if you can actually verify through testing. However, we can't default assume that, oh, monkey pots in aquarium equals elevated selenium levels. We can only speculate in the absence of proper legit lab tests. Perhaps we can find some anecdotal evidence to support our theories, but that's often about all we can do. We can't dumb it down by making our speculations, you know, factual. We talk a lot about utilizing botanicals to provide, you know, functional aesthetics at the very least, a possibility to help solve some potential challenges in the hobby. That's a good start. It's kind of a safe catch-all, which leaves open the possibility of proving or disproving more intensive assumptions, though it doesn't really adamantly assume anything that cannot be proven through observation. Yet, we in the hobby and the industry, present company included, have continuously spouted speculation on the various other benefits of botanical materials as if they're a, a given. Like, this is something that we've done with catapoles forever, right? You've seen my blogs and heard my podcasts questioning that sort of carte blanche assumptions that we in the industry heap onto vendors' assertions about the alleged health benefits that they're purported to offer fishes. Now, some of it's pure marketing bullshit. Some of it is perhaps legit. Some was proven by lab experiments. We talked about that. Yet, we constantly say, oh, catapoles prevent diseases, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's worth continuously investigating this kind of stuff, experimenting on a practical level as hobbyists and users, 
whenever possible to see if there is some merit to these claims, right? We've done that for years and that's good. We need to connect observation and investigation with the practical application of patience. Yeah, our old friend patience. Patience is simply fundamental in the botanical method aquarium world and it can truly make the difference between success and failure. Observation and attempting to ascertain what's going on in your tank real time are key practices that we need to embrace in order to determine what, if any, benefits botanicals are actually bringing into the fight. Yeah, I know we talk a lot about patients here, especially in the context of working with botanical method aquariums. We've been pretty much force feeding you the philosophy of not rushing the evolution of your aquarium, of hanging on during the initial period, you know, break down a, a period of the botanicals, not freaking out when the biofilms and fungal growths appear, all that stuff. Patience, embracing the process, not giving in to preconceived notions about what we're told should happen in our tanks one way or another. What goes hand in hand with patience is the concept of, well, how do I put it eloquently, leaving well enough alone, not messing with stuff. In the context of trying to get fishes to breed, this is always a bit of a challenge though, isn't it? Yeah, not just intervening in your aquarium when no intervention is necessary is not easy for many aspiring hobbyists and breeders. I mean, sure, it's important to take action in your aquarium when something looks like it's about to go south, as they say, but the reality is that good things in an aquarium happen slowly. And if things seem to be moving on a positive arc, you need not prod them any further. I think this is one of the most underrated mindsets we can take as aquarium hobbyists. Now, mind you, I'm not telling you to take a laissez-faire attitude about managing your aquariums or water changes or whatever. However, what I'm suggesting is that pausing to contemplate what will happen if you intervene is sometimes more beneficial than just jumping in and taking some action without considering the long-term implications of it. It's one thing to be decisive, quite another to be overreactive. However, it's easy to forget when it's your babies, right? And online aquarium forums are filled with frantic questions from members about any number of, you know, quote unquote problems happening in their aquariums, a good percentage of which are nothing to worry about. You see many of these hobbyists describe adding, you know, 100 milligrams of whatever in the next day, but nothing changed. Well, probably because nothing was wrong in the first place. Now, sure, sometimes there are significant problems that we freak out about and should jump on, but we have to pick our battles, don't we? Otherwise, every time we see something slightly different in our tank, we'd be reaching for the medication, the additives, or adding another gadget, that's the reefer in me, uh, or, or any of those types of things. Let nature take your course on some things. Understand that our closed systems are still little microcosms, subject to the rules laid down by the universe. <laughs> Realize that sometimes, more often than you might think, it's a good idea to leave well enough alone. Make good hypotheses, but don't push out highly speculative overgeneralizations as the gospel on something. Just don't do that. And circling back, we as hobbyists should hesitate to make quick, unverifiable assumptions based on only aesthetics. We can and should enjoy them, but we need to think about how the aesthetics are kind of a byproduct of some sort of biochemical process. It's all a, sort of a grand experiment and we're all part of it. It's cool. But we, we need to hold ourselves to a little higher standards about this stuff. We can do better and we should want to. Studying what actually occurs in our tanks is not that hard. And in fact, you'll find the pretty pics of the tanks that we all love so much will take on much more meaning when we understand the function and perhaps some of the science behind them. Stay educated, stay informed, stay curious, stay diligent, stay enthusiastic, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tan and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.